nine-part series out of them, and today the, uh, the topics are Jesus' offices of prophet, priest, and king, and uh, offices is kind of an awkward word, but think of it in terms of the roles that Jesus plays in our life as a prophet, priest, and king, and for centuries, theologians and Bible scholars have grouped these together as they've tried uh, uh, to, in an organized manner to present uh, a clear picture of who Jesus is, so um, you can make a series out of each one of those uh, today. So I have a difficult job of trying to figure out what exactly to say, talk about all three in one passage. So what basically I'm going to do is I'm going to just talk about the Old Testament prophecy that was made, uh, read uh, and look at the New Testament when that prophecy was fulfilled, and then talk uh, briefly uh, about what Jesus does in each one of those roles as our prophet, priest, and king. The first one comes from Deuteronomy 18, 15, and Moses was speaking, and he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Now, one of the hints in the New Testament that this was being fulfilled is in the transfiguration scene, which is in Matthew 17. And in that case, uh, Jesus took uh, Matt, uh, John, Peter, and James up on a mountain. Elijah and uh, Moses appeared, two of the most prominent prophets of the Old Testament. And they were in, in, surrounded in a cloud, and out of the voice, uh, God's voice came out of the cloud and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And it was like God was like pointing to Peter and James and John and say, Listen to him. Did you hear that before? Because that was what the last phrase is in the Deuteronomy prophecy, is listen to him. So God repeats himself so that we understand. So that was one thing for Jesus' inner three disciples to make sure that this is the prophet. But also you don't need to have uh, uh, God speaking directly to you. You can use your eyes and ears. In uh, John chapter 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000, broke loaves and fishes, and fed uh, multitudes. And the people realized that he was a prophet. And it said, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, Truly this is the prophet who has come into the world. Now, the people, what they were doing was they were associating Jesus' miracle of multiplying the bread. And they were associating him with back to the Old Testament in Moses' day, where Moses was associated with the manna, the bread that came from heaven that fed the Israelites. So that was the connection uh, that uh, they were making, and they were very accurate. And proof positive that this was a fulfillment, that Jesus was the fulfillment, was in Acts chapter 3, during Peter's second sermon. His first sermon was at Pentecost, but the second sermon, he basically says, and it's it's an extended paragraph, where Jesus was the fulfillment of Deuteronomy uh, 18.15. So, what does a prophet do? Um, what is a prophet? Well, in the Old Testament, the prophets were essentially God's representatives. They spoke what God gave them to. A lot of times they spoke about the indictment of the people uh, for their sins. The prophets called people to repentance. The prophets also pronounced God's forgiveness and pardon. So part of their job as a prophet was to deal or to address the topic of sin. And we see this very clearly in Jesus' life. Um, 
Before Jesus was born, uh, an angel appeared to Joseph uh, and said uh, that she, or Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So we see that Jesus' call immediately in his life is for dealing with sins. Repenting and believing, Jesus very early in his ministry made that clear. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And at the Last Supper, he made it very clear about God's pardon and forgiveness. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we see that Jesus as a prophet was dealing with sins, just as the prophets of the Old Testament. Prophets also interpret events of the past, present, and future, and Jesus did this many times. And perhaps one of the more interesting passages that he expounded upon was when he was debating with the Pharisees and he, was, he quoted Psalm 110. And he says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they, the Pharisees, said to him, The son of David. And Jesus said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And then Jesus poses the question, If David then calls him Lord, how is he? His son. And what Jesus was doing was he was reminding them that the Messiah was going to come through the lineage of, of David, but he was also making the point that the Messiah or David's son was not just flesh and blood because David referred to his descendant as Lord. Well, that doesn't make any sense because you always respect the elders. What Jesus was hinting at was that the Messiah would be more than just flesh and blood. Jesus was kind of pointing at himself saying, look, there's, there's a deity aspect, there's a human aspect, there's more to the descendant of, the king, of David's descendant than just flesh and blood. So he was pointing to his own deity. And then he's also had a future aspect in that, as again, as prophets look to the future, where he says in the phrase, I will put my enemies beneath your feet. That has not yet happened. So there's a prophecy. So Jesus was talking about the past when he was referring to the psalm and he was explaining about himself and he was talking about what was going to come. So Overall, Jesus was, again, fulfilling the role and what was typically done by the prophets. But in short, prophets spoke what was revealed to them by God. And you may have heard the term revelation, and I'm not talking about the book and the Bible revelation, but revelation is just the revealing of truth. And without that, we would not know a whole lot about God. Now, the Bible says that nature speaks of the glory of God. That's called natural Revelation, and by looking at nature, you can see that there is a creator. But that may not tell us a whole lot about who that creator is. And a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine at work, Joe, who was an atheist, uh, he comes into my office. You've got to know Joe. Joe's not very social. He always comes in. It's always very business. So he comes in, and he's got a book in his hand, and he sits down. And he and I have had this debate going on for 30 years, no kidding, 30 years. And uh, he comes into my office, sits down, and he says, I just wanted to tell you that I've come to the conclusion that there is a God. And the first thought that went through my head was he was just playing a joke on me, <laughs> and that he had a camera in the room and he just wanted to see what my face was. And I was completely, I mean, it, it came out of the blue. I wasn't expecting it. And he says, yeah, I, I believe in the existence of a God. And I said, well, thank you for telling me that. I appreciate that. I know you've, you know, many times we've had discussions, but 
I really appreciate you telling me this. I, I said, what was it that pushed you, made you reach your conclusion? And he said, you got to know, Joe reads all these very high intellectual books. And the book that he had in his hand was just another one that talks about the complexity of the universe and how finely tuned the universe is. And basically, Joe said, it makes a whole lot more sense to, to explain the universe that there is a designer, an engineer, a creator that's behind the universe than to simply attribute it to the random works of the laws of nature. And I said, well, that's, that's amazing. So Joe, who was an atheist, is now a theist. He's not a Christian yet. But I asked him, I said, so, so what's next? And he looked at me, he didn't know. <laughs> and basically he went on to say that he thought organized religion was a bunch of nonsense. I won't use the exact words he said. But, um, um, but anyway, nature revealed to Joe that there's a creator. But nature does not tell us what kind of a God he is. It doesn't tell us about his love, his justice, his mercy, his holiness, his sovereignty. That was his specific revelation. That was when God was speaking to the prophets or the apostles, and they recorded it for us. Otherwise, we would not know exactly who God is. But the scriptures reveal God's character, and also in Jesus, we see the perfect revelation of who God truly is. So the first fill-in on your bulletin should be, as the prophet, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to man. As the prophet, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to man. I'm sure that all of us have, to some degree, some misunderstanding or, or, or flawed image of God, either due to maybe a bad church experience, maybe a traumatic event in your life, uh, or maybe you had a bad relationship with your father. But what we need to do is we need to remove those bad images, those wrong ideas, and we need to replace them with the truth. So that's why I always encourage you to read your Bible. If nothing else, read the Gospels, read about Jesus who is reflecting the image and the perfect revelation of God to us. The next prophecy has to do with Jesus being, the Messiah being a priest, and this comes from Psalms 110. All of Psalm 110 talks about the Messiah, and it was written by King David. And uh, in that it says, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And I'll talk about this Melchizedek dude in a few minutes. But basically the Messiah is going to be a priest. Now, the fulfillment of this is it's described in Hebrews uh, by the writer of Hebrews. And, and uh, He's talking a little bit about the, what the priest did in the Old Testament, and then he talks about Jesus. So probably the simplest thing for me to do is just read to you what it says. So if you can just follow along, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. And so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
just as he says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the long and the short of that is, is the, the, the writer of Hebrews is just looking at Jesus' life and his ministry and, and, and says that he's the fulfillment. Now Melchizedek, is, is, he's this very obscure figure uh, that appears briefly in Genesis chapter 14. He's a contemporary of Abraham. And Melchizedek was the priest, the high priest, and the king of the city of Jerusalem at that time. And he held two offices, priest and king. And so he was a foreshadow or a type of Christ, or a type for Christ, because Jesus is filling prophet, priest, and king, kingly offices. Now, the interesting thing about why we needed a different order of priesthoods is if you know anything about the Old Testament, is there were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel, and which tribe produced, was responsible for the priesthood? It was the Levites. So if, we, if you've been here, you've heard the, um, some of the prophecies that I think Pastor Tim talked about was that the Messiah was going to come from the tribe of Judah. So how could he be a priest if he's from Judah? Because the priests typically come from the tribe of Levite. So Melchizedek served as just as, a, as an example and a foreshadow of the coming of Christ. So he was going to be, Jesus was going to be fulfilling the priestly order just like Melchizedek did. Now, what are the duties of a priest? Well, in the Old Testament, the priest was a mediator between God and, and his people. Um, as a mediator, the high priest would enter the holy place and he would sacrifice, uh, make offerings to God on behalf of himself as well as the people. And he did this once a year and he had to do this every year. But Jesus is our high priest. Not only did he offer the sacrifice, he was the sacrifice. And he only had to make a sacrifice once because he was the perfect sacrifice and he is the perfect high priest. So the prophets warned about sin. The priest uh, offered sacrifice for sin and Jesus as our high priest dealt with our sins so that we could have the gift of salvation. And not only does Jesus deal with our sins, but as our high priest, he does so much more. As our priest, he is our mediator, our intercessor, and our advocate. 1 Timothy 2 says, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And a mediator is simply someone who attempts to make two parties that are involved in a conflict to come together to an agreement or to reconcile the parties. And Jesus reconciled us to God through his death. Romans tells us that Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. An intercessor is simply someone who prays to the Father on our behalf. Jesus sits at the right hand, he's got the Father's ear, and he is interceding, he is praying for us. Isn't that a cool thought that Jesus is praying for us? An advocate. It says, if anyone sins, now does anybody here not sin? Maybe Janice does or Sam, but, but typically all of us sin. So why is this important? It says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, an advocate is an attorney or a defender who comes alongside you in a courtroom and represents you and protects you in a lawsuit. 
So why do we need an advocate? Why do we need Jesus to be our advocate? Well, again, this is one of these things where revelation, uh, direct revelation from God is very important because he pulls back the screen and he allows us to see what's going on in the heavens. In this verse from uh, Revelation, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before God day and night. And the context of that is in the future, but the truth in this verse is that 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year, Satan is constantly accusing us before God. He's reminding God of all of our faults, all of our unkind words, our insincerity, our lack of faith, times we deny him. Everything we do wrong, Satan is accusing us. And he probably also falsely accuses us. I mean, none of us likes to be criticized and none of us likes to be talked about in front of other people, and that's what Satan does continuously. And Jesus says, I object. He says, these are my children. I have given them my righteousness. I have paid the debt of their sin. There is no condemnation against them. Jesus fulfills that role for us every day, reminding the Father what he has done for us. And probably the truth be told is that many of us probably hear a little bit of the echoes of Satan's voices in our minds as we look at our lives and we say, you know, I call myself a Christian and I just did this, or I just said that, or I can't even find my Bible, I haven't read it since I don't know when. Satan will try to cut you down, and that's why we need the revelation of God's Word to look and we need to embrace the truth, and we need to know one of those truths is that Jesus is our advocate, and he's defending us. And perhaps the best verse, if you don't memorize Scripture, I'd encourage you to memorize this one. And it was what Carl read, and just, I'll just read it again. It's very powerful. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God doesn't want us to be afraid of him. God wants us to come before him with confidence. And we can only do that because of what Jesus did. So the second fill-in on your, your bulletin is Jesus is our mediator, our intercessor, and our advocate. He is our mediator, our intercessor, and our advocate. The final prophecy about Jesus as far as his offices or roles is about the Messiah would be the king. In Zechariah 9.9 it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on the colt, the foal of a donkey. What we see in the New Testament is several instances of, I'll say, the partial fulfillment of this prophecy. The Magi said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. At the triumphal entry 
into Jerusalem right at Passover at the end of his ministry. It says, and those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And they were referring to Jesus as the son of David, as the fulfillment of the uh, kingdom that would be restored. They were referring to Jesus as king. And then a few days later, uh, Jesus was uh, with Pilate. Now Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate, and the Pilate questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Jesus was recognizing and acknowledging his title as king. And even on his cross, there was a sign. It says, Above his head they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Now, Jesus was not much of an earthly king or a political king as we know kings today. He didn't conquer any territory or rule any territory, but he certainly conquered quite a few hearts along the way. He did lay the groundwork for the foundation of the kingdom of God through his ministry. He taught us about faith and forgiveness. He demonstrated a life of sacrifice for the benefit of others. He taught us to love one another so there would be no need for fighting or warfare. He was modeling the kingdom of God. But he did lead the fight for us when he conquered death and sin through his crucifixion and resurrection. And because of what King Jesus did, sin and death do not have the final word in the life of a believer. So what should our response be to our king? It should be to honor him. It should be to obey him. And the third filling on your blank is that we can only grow in the Christian life as we live obediently under Christ's rule and by his power. Again, we can only grow in the Christian life as we live obediently under Christ's rule and by his power. I want to show you something. Uh, this is a, a timeline uh, about what's going to come. And we have, over here we have the present church age. This is where we're at. This is where Christians live. They, they share the gospel. They disciple other believers. And there's a period coming, the seven years of tribulation. And essentially, if you don't know anything about it, it's going to be hell on earth. And uh, it'll make World War II look like a picnic. Um, and some events that are going to take place is uh, the rapture of the church. I don't know if you've heard that term, but that's where Jesus will take and pull the church out of the world. It's kind of like if you've watched Star Trek, you know, beam me up Scotty kind of a thing, will be taken up. And some people think that it's going to happen at the beginning of this seven-year period, so the church does not have to go through it. Some think that it happens in the middle, and it's not on this chart, but some think that the church will go through the tribulation and will be taken up at the end. I know there's not a lot of uniformity on this, but this is a general reading of what will happen if you just take a straightforward reading of the book of Revelation. And at the end of the seven years is what's called the millennial reign of Christ, where Christ will set up an earthly kingdom that will be for a thousand years. And after the end of that comes the final judgment, where people are assigned their final return, eternal destiny, either in heaven with him or in hell 
to be eternally separated from him. But for those of us who are believers, we will rule and we will reign with Jesus. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now the Jews in Jesus' day, they may have grown weary. They knew maybe some of these prophecies. The prophecy that Moses gave about the prophet was 1,500 years before Jesus came. King David, when he penned Psalm 110, that was about 1,000 years before Jesus came. And the prophecy from Zechariah about the king, that was 500 years before Jesus came. So people grow bored, they grow tired, they may not pay attention, they may grow weary. Now Jesus, when he was on the earth, and when he was talking about his second coming, and this was 2,000 years ago, he said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that's a question for each of us. Will we all be faithful? So the final thoughts for today, are you going to be faithful? Is Jesus your prophet? Is he going to teach, to teach you the truth about himself, about God, about who you are, and about our need uh, to have our sins addressed? Is Jesus your priest to mediate for you, to intercede for you, and to advocate for you? And then finally, is Jesus the king to rule and to reign in your heart? Let me pray. Dearly Father, we come before you and we thank you.